Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. There's a book that I commend to you. It's not a Christian book, but it's, it's worth reading um, called The Intellectuals, and it's written by Paul Johnson. And uh, it's just short biographies of many of the leading intellectuals of the le- basically of the 20th century, some of the 19th, who have influenced our lives and public life in, by their thinking and teaching. And uh, it's kind of revealing that, that the emperor has no clothes. It's that kind of a book. And uh, one of the comments he makes about Karl Marx and... Uh, Lenin, I think he makes it of Lenin as well, but especially I remember it in particular of Karl Marx, is that his love for all mankind was so great that he couldn't find it in himself to love any particular man. And uh, if you think about it, I think you understand what he's saying. He had a theoretical love for everyone that was so great that it allowed him to do whatever he wanted and to be... To be just absolutely unloving to any particular person. There was no particular person that he really loved, including his wife. And this is frequently, in a more sanctified way, the character of churches. We speak of a love, and because we speak of it, we think we are set free from the duties of loving particular people. But this is not how God has loved us. This is not Christ who, who carried our sins knowingly on the cross and died for a particular people, not in general, but in particular. And so it is a joy to love you and to be loved by you, to have not just a theoretical love for everyone, but to love you and to know that you love me and that we love each other and that is to be the mark of the church isn't it so I invite you to stand with me as a family that loves each other and loves God and to look together at the word of God this morning and our passage is Matthew 24 verses 32 through 41 Matthew 24 32 through 41. Jesus is speaking on the Mount of Olives to his, his select few, his disciples in private. Continuing on in what he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For just as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Then there will be two in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding grain at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's remain standing as I pray and will you lift your hands with me to ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to preach your word. It is a great honor that you have given mankind that we get to declare the truths of Jesus. We are the the bearers of glad tidings. We are the people who come to the besieged city and say the enemy has fallen. We are the messenger of the Most High. And so, Father, we pray that we will be glad and unashamed in our declaration of your truth. And I pray, Father, that you will help me and that you will be in all our lives as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there is an interesting thing that takes place in this passage that I just want to to make note of at the beginning that just reading it right now, it strikes me that I had never seen before. And that is that Jesus in this passage is referring to himself, but he does so frequently in this passage in the third person, he. Here in our passage, it's so you too. When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door, when it would seem like, you know, if Christ were speaking in a normal voice, as a normal man, he'd say that I am right at the door. But in this passage, as he talks about himself, he's talking about him. Okay, Julius, that fly that I was trying to kill on your back. I am going to go nuts. (laughs) So he speaks of himself in the third person, he, and and it's an unusual thing because Jesus is not the kind of guy like Donald Trump who speaks of himself in the third person, you know? It's not his mode of approach. He is humble and he is himself with us. He doesn't say he. And yet here, and it's a reflection of his immense glory and power. And his recognition that when he returns, when these events are taking place, he's coming as formally the son of man, the prophesied savior of the world, and the prophesied victor over death. And at that point, he doesn't want you thinking I. He's wanting you seeing he. Seeing beyond the flesh, seeing beyond the blood, seeing beyond the cross to the glory. And let's remember that as we look at this passage this morning that Jesus is not I at this point, it's he. As though even in his flesh, he wants to point out to them that this coming of the Son of Man is the coming of God. God with us, but God coming. There are three points that are made by Christ in this passage that I want to draw your attention to. It begins with a parable. The parable of the fig tree, the significance of following along with what he says, continues with a promise, a promise that certain things will pass away and certain things will never pass away. And finally, there is at the end a warning, a warning from Noah about his return. So a parable, a promise, and a warning. Now the parable is of a fig tree, 
And Jesus tells it as he does a number of parables like this to say, hey, look, guys, you're not stupid. And I haven't given you my word for no reason. You need to look at it and make, make judgments based on it. You need to look at it and hear it and recognize things on the basis of what you hear and, and what you have read. You are not to look at the word of God and go, okay, I've done my word for the day and I'm moving on. But we are to read it and be influenced by it. And so Jesus speaks at various times saying, look, don't you read the times? He says, you know, sailors look and they understand from the sky. Farmers understand certain things from the weather. He says, what do you understand based on my teaching, my telling you things what do you understand about the future and about your own day? What, what are you seeing? Are you recognizing? One of my favorite things in the year is when the first dahlia, or not dahlia, <laughs> daffodil, or crocus peeks its nose through the snow. You know, it's often there's still snow on the ground and the, the first crocuses come up out of the ground. And, and that's a sign of something. My dad used to tell how he loved as his first sign of coming summer when in the dark of winter, in the cold of winter, he'd go out, often he'd go out in his shirt sleeves up down the driveway to the mailbox out in the country where we lived and he'd go there and he'd, he'd get the mail and he'd hurry back in. But he, he told about going out there and finding the burpee seed catalog. Do they still send out the burpee seed catalog? Yeah, okay. It's probably not as prevalent today as it was 50, 60 years ago. But it was, uh, it was a catalog filled with seeds you could order and it came out in the middle of the winter so you could, you could be ready when spring came. And when my dad, my dad said he'd go out to the mailbox and he'd open it up and he'd find the burpee seed catalog and he'd see the tomatoes, the luscious tomatoes, the pictures on the, on the newsprint of that catalog in color. It was the junky catalog, but it would always have a page of full color pictures. And he said, for a moment, he said it was summer. I didn't even realize that I was out in the 10 degree weather, but I, I felt summer. That's a sign of summer. And the sign is, is this is a redundancy, but a sign is significant. Sign is important. It means things. It signifies something. And Jesus is saying, hey, now I'm giving you a sign. Just as the fig tree, when the branch comes out and it becomes tender and the first of the leaves start appearing on the trees, the fig tree or whatever tree you might want to think about, when you see the, the blossoms on the apple or you see the, the cherry trees in bloom, you, you say, ah, summer is near. Jesus says in the same way, when you see the signs that I've spoken to you about in this, in this dialogue that he has with his disciples, this discourse, he says in the same way, you should be anticipating certain things. Understand, I've told you these things for a purpose. Now that purpose is the thing I want to talk about this, this morning. But I said at the outset of this passage that this was really not a passage I was looking forward to preaching on. And uh, I've had to fight myself going through it. 
Part of the reason that I have not looked forward to preaching on this passage is the way that growing up I came to, to see the kind of Christianity that focused on passages such as this as powerless, without fruit. And uh, that's certainly not why Jesus gave it to us. Jesus expects there to be fruit on the basis of it. Perhaps you, like, like me, look at this passage and you say, Ugh. why do I say, yeah? Well, I was driving here this morning. I passed by a church and its church sign and it said, come to our revelation study. And I thought to myself, oh my, you know. I've been in churches where they've had revelation studies, both as as an attender and as a pastor. And I'm not saying we'll never study Revelation, but we'll never study it the way those churches did. Never. I remember when I came here to Toledo, there was a group that was very fastidiously making its way through the book of Revelation. A study led by a dear man in the church, but they had been doing it two years and I think they did it another year. Every week this group would gather and they would study Revelation. And uh, as the pastor of that church, I, I came to view the group that did that study as being, well, almost curiously devoid of power and of fruit. But boy, they loved Revelation. They really got into studying Revelation. This is something that is, is absolutely true. The study of apocalyptic events foretold in the Bible is often a rabbit trail that leads to, to nothing good. And yet, Jesus says here, I've given you these signs so that you'll learn from them. And so even as I speak of the of the fruitlessness of much of the pursuit of this kind of passage in terms of trying to identify and think through. And I also want to say to you that Jesus has said, this is important. You need to understand these truths. You must be prepared. And so it's, to my mind, beyond my capacity to thread this needle between the utter fruitlessness of the speculations and the, the uh, preoccupations with passages like this and yet the necessity of understanding what Jesus has said and applying it and finding it to be fruitful in our lives. So in this passage, there are a series of signs that precede when G this parable of the, of the, of the fig tree uh, among the signs are certain general signs that involve all mankind, um, world kind of epic forces and, and trials and tribulations that are, that are not unique to the church or to Christians. Verses 6 through 8, Jesus lists these. Earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famine. These, Jesus says, are prefatory. They are only the beginning of the birth pains. They're the, the Hicks-Braxton contractions of his coming, all right? Have I got that right? 
Braxton Hicks, okay, thank you. <laughs> the, yeah. Some of you don't know at all what I'm talking about. Well, that's fine. <laughs> You'll learn one day, perhaps. <laughs> um, and so these are only the beginnings, you know, it's just like the first premonition. After that come four more things that are specifically involving the church. Uh, there will be specifically Christian um, tribulations. And more like tribulations, I mean, actual uh, suffering, attacks, physical, some emotional, relational, but things that come to you, not because you're living in the world, but because you're living for Christ in the world. When Jesus says, you know, any follower of me has to take up his cross and follow me. Some of that cross is in this world, you have troubles. In this world, all will hate you. You can't be greater than your master. You know, if they hated me, they'll hate you. And so there is this specifically Christian suffering that is a part of this. And Jesus says, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And so the, the, the visible church, you know, all those who are visibly part of the church will decline. There will be fewer people who say, I'm a Christian. And the visible church will be pruned. This suffering will cause many who are like the, the followers of Jesus who followed him and believed him in their hearts, the Bible says, but did not speak of their faith in him, including many of the leaders and the Pharisees. Because of their fear of the Jews, the world will become like that. People will say, I believe, but they will not, out of fear, be willing to speak it publicly. And we understand that if we're not willing to profess the name of Christ before men, neither will he profess our name before the Father. So that to be afraid and not to speak the name of Christ is not to know Christ. It's not to know his glory. It's not to know his power. It's not to know these things. So we'll see that take place. This decline that's due to persecution and to internal conflict that is engendered by persecution will be accelerated by the rise of false prophets, verse 11, and false messiahs who will, we are told in that verse, deceive many. And so this outward oppression and, and persecution will lead to internal fracturing and will cause to arise within the church false messiahs and false prophets. And what are they gonna do? Well, they're gonna talk about the end. They're going to say, the end, the end. They're going to use these events, these apocalyptic events, and say, I'm the guy. Listen to me. I'm telling you. This is how it's going to be. This. And so we need to be very careful at times like these that we are not following those who are teaching falsehood. Because falsehood is a trap. And many will fall into these false traps. That will, What will they do? Well, they're going to tell you you don't have to suffer. They're going to tell you, hey, I'm coming to bring you glory. I'm coming to turn over this world so that everyone follows God. We're go I'm coming here as a sign of, you know, or maybe not I, but Jesus is with me. And Jesus is going to deliver you from your suffering. And you won't have to go through these troubles. God doesn't want you to go through troubles. And that's what they're going to say. They're going to tell you, ah, you don't have to go through these things. It's not right. It's not good. And many will follow them. They'll be deceived. Then third in these 
specifically Christian um, signs that Jesus has given us. There will be a general sign and then a particular. Um, In verse 12, Matthew writes that Jesus says there will be a vast increase in lawlessness. People will be, there will be anarchy in the hearts, rebellion in the lives. There will be this vast increase, a despising of God's law and truth, a trying to turn over his his written laws and also the laws that are revealed in creation, you know, and it will cause the love of most people to grow cold. It will cause the love of many in the church to say, whoa, 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 this is, you know, this is so bad that, you know, I, I, either they're caught up in it themselves or they're so discouraged by this lawlessness, one or the other, both of them have the same effect of causing people to say, oh, you know, I can't, I can't go that way. I'm not going to throw my life away. You know, it doesn't seem to be advancing here. This, this kingdom isn't growing. Finally, as the ultimate sign of his return, there will be desolation and it will be viewed as holy. It will be an abomination because desolation will be placed in the heart. Desolation is the lack of fruitfulness. A desolate land, a desolate home, a desolate life is a life that is given over to unfruitfulness, given over by God and embraced by the person. And so what we see is that mankind, and especially Christians, will embrace desolation. Fruitless living. They will not want to have children. They'll say, oh, no. They'll justify it in any one of a thousand ways, but they'll embrace desolation. They will avail themselves of birth control and abortion. They will embrace desolation and it will be in the heart of God's holy place, your heart, my heart, the heart of the church, that desolation is embraced. Let me just say, friends, that we need to recognize the uniqueness of the day we live in. From time immemorial, abortion and birth control were viewed as incredible wickedness. Luther says in the story of Onan that Onan committed a murder who practiced a form of birth control committed a murder most foul by doing that. But in the church today, no one even questions it. We deprive God of fruit. We say to God, this reward that you have promised me of children, I don't want God. We have endorsed and embraced a theology that says, don't try and do anything for God, that's wicked. Just be yourself and look to him in faith and come to him with empty hands. I'm telling you, I've I've mentioned this sermon over and over again in my own conversations and here in the pulpit. The sermon was the last sermon I heard in the PCA of an ordinance, a guy coming for I come to God with empty hands, with empty hands. I come to him with empty hands, which is just absolutely opposite the teaching of Scripture. We come to him with the fruit of repentance. 
we must come with repentance. But repentance is gone. The thing that Luther himself said was the very first thing that was the matter with the Catholic Church in his theses, 95 theses, that when God commanded us to repent, he meant for all of life to be repentance. That repentance is a daily, hourly, minutely, secondly duty of the Christians has been lost. There's no repentance. And so desolation, the desolation of fruitlessness is clearly embraced within the heart of God's people today in a way that is unique. The abomination of desolation threatens you. And so, that's the ultimate, the embrace of desolation. And yet, I am not calling you to sell your house, to move to the hills. The Bible is not. The Bible is saying, recognize these signs. Understand them. There have been frequent errors when the return of Christ was especially sought after and believed to be imminent in one way or another. In two specific ways, they're called, I'm going to use a big word with you, chiliastic. It means it comes from the Greek meaning thousand. It's the same as millennium, all right? Millennium is a thousand years. Chiliasm is the belief in a thousand year reign of Christ. We all believe in this thousand year reign, but whether we say it's is, you know, there's a lot of things that happen depending on how you understand that thousand years to come about and what it is. And many of these have proven radically awful in the life of the church. In the time of, Munster, in the time of Luther, there was a group of people that believed that the millennium was coming into force and that they were going to usher in the millennial reign of Christ. And they were, they were called the Munster radicals, or the, and they were largely influenced by the by the Anabaptists, but they were also reformed. And in the town of Munster, they set up the reign of what they said was the kingdom of God. And it was insanity. Filled with sexual perversion, the city was just a nutcase. So that the, all the princes said, we've got to wipe out Munster. And they did, and Luther and the, the reformers said, yeah, that's right. You understand that Jim Jones, you remember Jonestown? Some of you were alive back when Jim Jones took his followers to Guyana and set up a, 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 set up sort of like a kingdom of his cult there. You remember that? Have you heard of it? And he led 900 people to drink the Kool-Aid and commit suicide, including like hundreds of children. And Jim Jones was an evangelical preacher. And he said, the kingdom of God is coming. He actually said, I am an incarnation of Christ. These kinds of things, this kind of preoccupation with these events can be horribly, horribly destructive. In the 1800s, there was a Baptist pastor in New York, upstate New York, named William Miller. And he came out of the, this, the Second Great Awakening, he started looking at his Bible, and he came up with a theory of of what the days of Daniel and the days of Revelation meant. And he started teaching in like 1831 that the the return of Christ in the millennium was near. And it caught fire with people because people were saying, yeah, we wanna believe the Bible, but they were open to false teachers. And this guy 
taught that the return of Christ was near. And so people, and he had a number of disciples who spread his teachings, and so people started believing it. And eventually he, he got pushed on it to the point where he said, okay, this is the date. He gave a date in the 1840s, 1842, something like that, 1843. And 1844 it was. He said it would occur on October 22nd, 1844. And on that day, all across New York and New England, thousands, some have said up to 100,000 people, they were mocked in the towns afterward. Thousands of people had sold all their possessions, they had dressed themselves in white, and they stood on hillsides near their homes waiting the rapture. Didn't come, so he gave, he said, oh, I miscalculated. It's kind of like something that happened about 20 years ago in American Christianity. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The guy did the same thing. He recalculated and came up with a new date. That new date came and the rapture didn't occur. And it was called throughout New England, it's known in church history as the great disappointment. The great disappointment. And it caused many, many people to stop attending church. It led to many destructive things. It also led to the, the Adventist denominations which said, okay, he was wrong about the years, but it's real close. And so for many years, the Seventh-day Adventist churches in a town, if you went, when I was a child, if you went to a town and you found the Seventh-day Adventist church, it was not like the church that we worshiped in for our first 10 years. It was the ugliest, plainest, cinder blockest-ish building in the town. It made the local body shop look nice, all right? And, and the reason was they said, well, Christ is returning. We're not going to spend money on our church. He's going to be returning. About the 1980s, they started saying, whoa, you know, it's been 100 years now. Maybe we should build nice churches. And that's why the, the building here is so nice, because they said we were wrong. What's interesting is that during that period, Adventists were building these crummy churches in anticipation of Christ's return, their homes weren't crummy. You understand? This is the kind of thing that happens when you start identifying. People start putting their eyes on this and they take their eyes off of the simple duty of fruitful obedience that Jesus is urging here. Jesus is not saying, hey, sell everything and go and wait in white robes on the mountains. What he's saying is, you need to be careful that you are ready when I return. You need to be caught up in the work that I've given you. When the master comes back and he's been gone and he looks, will he find you faithfully serving or will he find you beating the other servants, partying and living as though he's never going to return? The point of this is to say, be faithful right here, right now. It could be, it could be tomorrow. Not go live in the hills. In fact, it's very interesting. We're gonna to come to this in the next chapter there. He tells a parable, a parable continuing this theme. It's called the parable of the 10 virgins. You know the parable, there's 10 virgins who go out to wait for a bridegroom and they all take oil for their lamps and the bridegroom is delayed and it goes, stretches into the middle of the night. And, uh, and then the cry arises, ah, 
oh, the wedding party's coming, the bridegroom's coming, and they all go to make sure their, their lanterns, their oil lanterns are lit. But five of the ten have had their oil run out. And five have brought extra oil. All right? And the five who have their oil run out say, oh, give us your oil. And the ones who brought extra say, no, there won't be enough for us. And so they run to town and they're not there. They're not there when the, the bridegroom arrives. What's interesting is they all go out and they all take oil. But five of them think it's going to be tomorrow. You know, they think it's going to be within an hour. And the ones who prepared for it to be longer are the ones who are ready. Jesus is not saying here, go and live in some crazy fashion because my return is going to be tomorrow morning. He's saying, live faithfully, be ready whenever. So here in our passage, Jesus tells signs of the end. We don't know when it will come, but we need to pay attention to these signs. It is significant that the church, that the church, that the individual Christians of our nation and the world have embraced desolation, barrenness. That we have all our justifications for leading lives that are fruitless. And I'm talking about every form of fruit. We have justifications theologically for not obeying Jesus, for not repenting, for not doing this. Oh, that's works. We have justifications for physical fruitlessness. We've got justifications everywhere you go. And then we live in the land where everyone loves everyone, but no one actually loves anyone. A fruitless love. So we turn from this sign, this parable, to the promise. The promise is that the signs that he has given will not return void. It's, he says certain things are going to pass away and certain things will not pass away. Three in particular. And among these three we find one of the great promises of ever given. Ever given. One of the great promises of scripture. First, Jesus says in verse 34, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now Calvin reads this, John Calvin reads this as meaning that that the beginning of these events took place before this, this generation passed away. And he looks at it as a 40-year, 30-year, 20-year generation. He says, my disciples will be around at the destruction of the temple. But he says, only the very beginning of this chapter applies to that. The rest of it is far in the future. There are people, and I've talked about them before, preterists who say that the whole chapter has already taken place. And they actually say that much of Revelation has taken place. They have the advantage of regarding a generation as a specific period of time. Despite the fact that scripture does use generation not just for a physical generation, but for, but for an entire race of people. So uh, in Psalm 12, David says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. And so Jesus is contrasted with the generation, the forever. It's a, an eternal generation, and it's, mankind is one generation in this view. Generation is kind of an ambiguous term, you understand? But this view says we believe it was a 40-year period of time, and everything in here is accomplished. Problem with that view is by 
not viewing a generation as being potentially something longer than 40 years, which scripture does use generation to mean. It can mean the whole history of the human race. Uh, By holding to what they call a literal generation, they're forced to spiritualize the thousand years. And a thousand years is actually a millennium. A thousand year reign is much more specific in terms of what it constitutes in scripture than a generation. A generation is never defined. You understand what I'm saying and it's used. But a thousand years is a thousand years and those who say that this passage needs to be read literally often fail to recognize the the kind of inconsistency in their own thinking that they they take generation and make it 40 years and then because they've done that they have to have the millennium the millennial reign of Christ be now like 1980 years or so and so they take and make a millennium I view both of them as more spiritual terms and that's what I'd encourage you to do but you can do what you want Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. It's either his disciples or it's the generation of man. I prefer the generation of mankind because it's in a, in a sense the, the promise of God that he gave Noah repeated by Jesus that I will never again destroy all the earth. This generation will not pass away. Mankind will not end. Nuclear war will not destroy you. Global warming will not be the end of the human race. Christ will return and he will return to a living human race. We are not headed for destruction before the return of Christ. So this generation will not pass away. Then Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. Verse 35, heaven and earth are going to be gone one day. Now he's not saying that's before his his appearing, his appearing, we know, will, will coincide. It will be the onset of the skies being rolled back as a scroll, of the heavens disappearing and the sun and the moon and the stars falling, as scriptures speak of. And so with his coming, heaven and earth, the very things you're sitting on, the things that you take as verities, that you say, this is real, will disappear. They'll be gone. Much of what you think is reality is going to disappear. And then finally, Jesus says, but my word will stand or last forever. Heaven and earth will disappear. My word will stand forever. They will not pass away. And so we're promised in this this statement by Jesus, my words will not pass away. Though heaven and earth pass away, my words... We're called to something. And what we're called to is to understand that what you see with your eyes and you see as reality is reality, but reality ends. Reality stops. Your eyes, your eyes that you trust in and that you think are full of truth deceive you. Do not live by sight do not live thinking that what your eyes see is real instead recognize that what is real what is 
actually going to last is what your ears hear, the word of Christ. Everything that you look at with your eyes will go, but the word of God that you hide in your heart, that you listen to, that you study, that will stand forever and ever. Stop thinking that reality consists of what you see. Throw away your vision and stand on the word of God. So I am struck by how many people are led in all their lives by what their eyes see rather than what their ears hear, which is truth. I think about people I know who live and they say, you know, I really wish I lived in a place where there was beauty. I'd like to live in the mountains, you know? And so they move without regard to churches, without regard to anything, but their eyes love the mountains and they wanna be in the mountains and I wanna live in an area where it's beautiful, not recognizing that what they're doing is killing their souls because they've preferred vision to the word of God. They don't care about churches. They don't think about that. I want beauty. It's done time after time. I think about the guys who fall for a girl, smitten, infatuated, drunk on her beauty. It doesn't matter that her beauty could be the beauty of, that's wicked, that, that Proverbs says, don't let your sons go after this kind of woman. You know, they, they see her, they... Their eyes are full and then they fall like an ox to its slaughter. Some of you have fallen for physical beauty, for the money of the guy, for the position, for the status, for the prettiness of the woman, for the sexuality of it all. And you have ignored the word of God. And you reap the consequences of ignoring the word of God. Your eyes, your eyes, and we live in a, a hyper-idolatrous age where our eyes are everything and we even are making, uh, we're making up a future where we'll live in a land where there's no reality at all, no word of God at all, but it's all eyes. It's called the meta, you know? We want to live in some idolatrous form of existence where our eyes are real and what our eyes see is the, the construct that we follow and we have totally ignored the word of God which says, Render to God the fruit of obedience. Render to God the simple fruit of believing his word and leading a life that's obedient to the word of God. And so I want to close with this warning. And the warning is Jesus says, hey, you need to be aware of the time of Noah. It seemed inconceivable. I don't know if I buy the the idea that rain had never been seen on the earth at the time of Noah. I know people say it's implicit in the passages and I, I think it does seem that that's possible. You know, some of you are aware of what I'm talking about. There was a mist that watered the earth and so, um, and so there's a lot of thinking that the flood, teaching today that the flood occurred 
to a people who'd never seen a flood, who'd never seen, you know, there was just sort of the atmospheric atm oxygen which watered the plants. It's possible. There may have been rain. What is clear, okay, what is clear is that no one had ever seen a flood that killed everyone. That was unprecedented. They did not anticipate it. And yet the crazy thing is, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For decades, generations, maybe even centuries, given his age at the time of the ark. Noah had been saying, God, God, but they saw the world, they saw their surroundings, they saw, they saw, they saw, and they would not believe the word. I want to say to you, friends, with all introspective understanding that this applies to me as well. The glory of our church is that we have men and women who love the word of God. That I can go to a little church in Swanton and hear a guy from our church preach a sermon that, that thrills me. That I can have an elder teach Sunday school and be challenged in the core of my being. This is strength. This is glory. From 18-year-olds to 80-year-olds, we have preaching. And in our women, we have a love for the Word of God. We're going to have an 80-year-old preach on New Year's Sunday. Right, Mr. James? Mr. James, where are you? Stand up and say, yes, David. Okay? Yes. All right. Thank you. Yes, David. He said that? Did, it, did you hear him? All right. <laughs> I say this because it's the gift God has given us as a church to have the word of God live in our presence richly. But we can have the word of God here richly and we can go our own way and ignore it. Don't ignore the preaching you hear. Don't think that God is not speaking to you just because you don't like what it says. Don't think that, uh, I'm told often of people who left here because they thought, David was too hard on us, you know? Now, David's too hard on us. I talked to another pastor, and he told me, David's too hard on you. He expects too much. He's not, he's not gracious. Well, listen. God has put you here. God has given us his word. We've seen the love and the power of his word. I'm often wrong. I hope I'm not when I'm preaching. But when I call you to bear fruit for the kingdom of God, I hope you know this isn't David's word. That Jesus is saying here, be ready, be ready. Be found with your oil full. Be found doing my will. Be ready because it will come and two people who think they're, they're joined at the hip will be severed. And one will go to be with me and one will go to hell. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that the word of Christ may dwell in us richly, and that we may heed it and be found waiting when he returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.